Hi, this is Mike Spivey with the Spivey Consulting Group, and this morning I have the um, good fortune to spend a little bit of time talking about, um, <laughs> I guess you could argue this is the nearest and dearest topic to my career, which is how would you apply, or in this case, how would I apply to law school if I were applying right now? So let's pretend I'm a junior. It's February 22nd. I'm a junior in college, and I'm going to apply to law school. What would I do? Well, first and foremost, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this. A, I don't want this um, podcast to meander forever. But B, I I tend to find that pre-law advisors, law school admissions officers, people in, in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, we love to lecture downward about how you need to explore, you know, where you want to be, your motivations, your why. Obviously, that's important. But it becomes a little bit awkward to assume that you haven't. So just keep in mind, it is a great starting point to sit down, talk it out, write it out, discuss it out with influencers in your life. You know, why is it that I think I want to go to law school? And if you can't answer that question, the next step would be, well, what can help me answer the question? Which brings me to point two. I'm going to spend most of this podcast talking about what makes a good applicant, but one of the best things you can do to make yourself not just a good applicant but a good law school student and this is backed by research would be to work for a few years and it doesn't have to be necessarily in a law school environment there's a former law school faculty admissions chair from harvard who worked at colorado law who now works at spivey consulting his name is scott moss scott Moss and alexandria burnett marks research this, they found that people with work experience tend to outperform their LSAT score in law school. People with teaching experience tended to outscore their LSATs um, as far as law school performance by plus six. They were plus six above their LSAT score in predicted law school performance, which is going to nicely, I think, get me off of this track of get work experience. Work experience would help. It would help with your law school interviews. It would give you things to talk about in a differentiated way. It would give you life experience. Law school is a professional school, so it would get you in a professional environment. But I'm going to get off that, and let's pretend you're going straight from junior to your senior year, and you're applying KJD, which means straight through kindergarten to law school. I mentioned that teachers get a plus six LSAT bump as far as how they perform in law school. They exceed the expectations. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I have a theory, and my theory is that when you teach something, you learn it better. You become a better learner. So now I'm going to talk about the LSAT. If I were applying, I would set my LSAT dates. You get, you now, per a recent LSAC change, get three takes in a year, five takes in two years, seven total in your lifetime. And law schools, despite what you hear, despite what you might read online, despite what people with no law school admissions experience might tell you, and they'll tell you with like the straightest face because they believe it, law schools care about your highest score. That is the score that goes to U.S. News and World Report. If you are a dean of, a, of admission, your boss, the dean of a law school, is highly likely going to focus on a couple of things, one of which is to increase your LSAT score. You're only sending the high score to U.S. News World Report. So if you're averaging scores, you are not helping your mandate from your boss. Your class medians will drop and you will be out of the job. 
for very understandable reasons, your high score is the score that matters far and away the most. Law school see all your test scores. If you have six or seven, you probably want to explain why, but there's lots of good explanations. I had a client who had seven who really needed to be at NYU or Columbia because his fiance was in New York City. And he got in on, on the seventh take and we wrote an addenda explaining that. And it helped, but it made a lot of sense. Ideally, you take it once, you pop off with their, your highest possible score. I mentioned teaching as doing people who teach do better in law school. One way to study for the LSAT is learn it and then teach it to someone else. Another piece of advice I have on the LSAT is the simple concept of state-dependent learning. Most people, and by most, I, I'm, I'm saying 47 out of every 49, score lower on their first test, on their first take, than they were diagnostically practicing at. Not because that test is any harder than the test that they're taking, right? You've been taking scores of old real tests and scoring a 169. The score you get back after your first take, if it's a 161 or a 164, that's very common. Again, you can take it again and you can take it a third time in the cycle. And I would encourage you to until you get your max score that you determine you're targeting. But the reason why, and we've blogged about this and we've podcasted about this, the reason why people score lower on game day than when they're practicing is entirely because of the mental change that goes on on the real test. Test takers understandably get nervous. Test takers understandably when they're practicing LSAT, when they're studying, if you get a text from your best friend, your parents, your significant other, you stop what you're doing and you check it. If something on TV or the internet pops up and is exciting, you might stop your test taking and focus on that. The clients of ours who, when they practice and diagnostically take LSAT tests under the closest simulation to game day conditions are the clients that tend to do better on the first take. So when you're taking practice LSAT tests from old LSATs, I would lock yourself in a place. I would put distracting music or something on in the background because I promise you there are going to be distractions at the test center. And believe it or not, on many of those tests, I would give yourself two to three to four fewer minutes than the allotted time on the real test. This is called narrowing the goalpost. They do it in football. When field goal kickers kick and practice they kick through with these very narrow goal posts why because during the game the goal post seems super wide to them narrow your goal post set conditions at the most sort of harsh predicted level possible take your diagnostics teach the lsat to someone else even if you're kind of like lecturing out loud to yourself you will score higher i'm going to give you the rank order of how to dedicate your money for getting into law school Number one, LSAT prep. Number two, visiting schools. Number three, hiring someone to help you with your application, right? So this is not my firm's best interest, but I promise you it's in yours. The best thing you can do with your money is to get the highest score possible. Hire someone to coach you on the LSAT if you, if you have money set aside from that. Now we, we go to the next best thing, which is visiting. If I were applying to law school, I would set aside my summer to come up with a target list of schools, stretch schools that are your dream schools, target schools that are right around where you think your medians are, and 
one or two, you don't need more than two, but one or two safety schools. By very definition, you really should get into a safety school, but by that same definition, it's probably not gonna help you with scholarship negotiation leverage, and you're probably not gonna go there if you get into your target or a goal school. Oddly enough, in keeping in mind that I have to professionally worst case everything for applicants, but one of the common mistakes I see is someone applying to 10, 12 safety schools. You're just throwing your money away. My very first year on the other side of things, this side, consulting, I had a client with a 171 and a 3.9, and he kept applying to, like, he would get an email from LSU, and he would apply, and, you know, Drexel, and he would apply, and, you know, there was just, like, 40 safety schools out there, none of which ever were, he was ever going to go to. Set your target. Seven to ten is sort of the norm. If you apply to six, that's totally fine. If you apply to 15, that's totally fine. Don't be like the person many, many years ago that LSAC told us about at a conference that applied to something like 182 law schools. That's not fine. Do not apply to 180 schools. Anywhere between 6 to 15, I think, is a good number. Try to get to know someone at as many of those schools as possible. Summer is a great time. Because you are more memorable if you visit a law school in the summer because they are not running around doing a million things. Starting September, October, November, law school admissions officers are traveling. They're traveling because they're coming to you. They're going to school fairs. They're going to LSAC forums in major cities. That's the second best way to get to know them. But the best way is to visit the school because you will have more of their attention. They will remember you better. You can stay in touch with them for the entire cycle. And by entire cycle of staying in touch, I don't mean once a week. I mean from time to time at strategic, pivotal inflection points. And if you visit in the summer, you'll get a lot more of their attention. But also, you'll get to see the school. You're going to spend three years somewhere. Would you date someone for three years based on their online reputation? Probably not. So this is when, again, I get to like sit back and old man Spivey gets a lecture for a second about, please, please, please don't get so caught up in U.S. News and World Report rankings. U.S. News and World Report is a fine starting point. But there are better resources out there for refining your search for where to apply to law school. You could go to um, MyRank, which is what we did. We took all available data from multiple sources, 509s, uh, LST, etc. And you can individualize and target what things matter to you. So you can totally take out faculty reputation. You can take out anything you want from all the available data and rank order schools based on what matters to you. That's the, the Spivey Consulting My Rank. You can go to LST. They have wonderful law school transparency. They have wonderful employment outcomes. You can go to the above the law rankings. They have employment outcomes. All of these are better than U.S. News and Report, which, again, are sort of using arbitrary metrics. But also keep in mind that what area of law do you think you want to practice on and what region do you want to practice in? If you want to practice in Boston, going to BC might make a lot more sense than going to a school in California is ranked higher than a Boston school, right? There are so many parts of U.S. News and World Report rankings that you don't know about because they're not disclosed. In fact, they're not even always, they're not fully disclosed to law schools that are if are at best arbitrary and at times nonsensical. If you want to Google a great article, Google Chris Guthrie. He's the dean of Vanderbilt Law School. He just wrote in 2020 a response to an article. I think it's it, it, the title is Toward a Mission-Based Ranking System? 
find and read that article. Those are the things that you want to target in a school you're looking for. Are you being instructionally placed in an environment such that three years later you know the law, you're better prepared to be a lawyer than when you walked into the law school? Are your job and bar passage opportunities better at those law schools? Is the law school in an area or will it place you in an area where you want to practice law? There are very few, if there's 200 law schools, there are very few national law schools. So just keep those in mind. Find six to 15, do your due diligence, visit if you can. If you can't visit, I would literally, again, this, the podcast is titled what, How I Would Apply to Law School. I personally, and I know a lot of people shouldn't do this and wouldn't be comfortable with, with doing this, but if I couldn't go to a law school and visit, and if I couldn't go to a forum or fair, which again is not nearly as good as visiting the school because you're going to get a tired, traveled, weary admissions officer who's just talked to a thousand other students. So they're probably not going to remember you, but at least you'll get to ask them questions and at least you might get their contact information. But what I would do is I would actually over the summer, if I couldn't visit, I would call the admissions office and say, is there a time I can speak to an admissions officer for 10 to 15 minutes on the phone just to introduce myself and ask a few questions about the law school? Admissions officers tend to go into admissions because they like meeting people. So what would I do on that phone call? I would have two or three questions. You know, I'm super interested in Princeton Law School. I'm curious how you got started there. Then the admissions officer starts talking about themselves and they start talking about what they like about their school, which is always a happy topic for them. Believe it or not, that makes you more memorable. The more they're talking, the more memorable you are. It's Dale Carnegie, 1941, the book, How to Make Friends and Influence People. So if you can't visit, you can still connect. You can email alums. Now, you know, alumni of law schools are busy lawyers, but the summer is not a bad time to email, the end of the summer. You can introduce yourself. You can find student leaders of student organizations and email them. I have a client who has been connected with a student president leader who is now championing the admission of this client to the dean of admission because the student at the law school knows the dean of admission. And all my client did was reach out to the leader of the student organization and introduce himself. And now he has someone close to the dean of admission putting in good words for him. That is a win. So do not be afraid to get to know people at every single law school you're going to apply to. And there are many different ways to get to know people. Now for the fun part. So we've covered knowing why you're applying. Very briefly covered exploring a job. But I'm trying not to make this podcast about that. Again, that is something that's important that you should talk out. But I'm not going to in this podcast sort of give you all the variables there. We've covered how important the LSAT is. You can take it three times. Ideally, you would take it possibly when you're in school. There's some data, there's some belief out there that people do better on it when they're in study mode. But if not, you would take it in the summer. Then you could take it in September, December for your third take. We've covered how the high score matters. We've covered how important it is not just to visit the school, but to introduce yourself to people at the school. I have another podcast on spiveyblog.com about how I'm naturally an introvert and I turn myself into an extrovert. This is the time to do it. You don't have to be an extrovert for the rest of your life, but visiting and introducing yourself to students, faculty, particularly admissions officers is in your favor. Because here's the point, and this is going to bleed over to the resume and essay conversations. The key to admission, two words you always want to keep in mind are positive differentiation. 
You want to positively stand out. Think of applications not as yours in a vacuum. Think of them that if they were printed out and stacked up and you were applying to Georgetown, that stack of applications would be 18 stories high. You need to be one out of those 18 floors high that gets plucked out. So don't think of yourself as an applicant in a vacuum. You're competing for the attention of the admissions officer amongst thousands and thousands of applications. So the two words that always determine, always determine who gets admitted are positive differentiation. How do you positively differentiate? A 180 is simple, it's objective. You're in the 99.9th percentile. A 4.2 is empirical, right? But you can positively differentiate so many different ways. Positive differentiation, let's talk about your essays for a second and your resume. Positive differentiation in your resume is not bloviating and going on about every little nuance. I increased sales 33% in my quarter as a team leader. Because you see that all the time on the professional side. Positive differentiation may very well just be that last section of your resume that I think all applicants should have that list interests. Trail running, Game of Thrones, it sounds counterintuitive to you because you haven't done admissions, so you haven't gotten bored in your eighth year of admissions, again, reading overwrought, bloviating resumes and essays that talk about esoteric things that are placed in there by applicants to try to influence an admissions officer, and the admissions officer isn't falling for it. Be sincere. Talk about real interests. If you have an interest in trail running and it overlaps with the dean of admissions or the admissions officer reading your file, there is evidence upon evidence that that is more important than a skill set. This comes from the Journal of Human Resources. Having something in common with the decision maker trumps any other component of interview selection type process. So take your sincere interest, put them in your resume. Take your personal statement, the most important part of your application, this is a qualitative part, generally about two pages, and this is what you should do. Do not write it or think about it in terms of how do I impress an unknown person, an unknown committee that doesn't even exist because it's going to be a person reading it. Do not write it for their sake, and almost every applicant makes this mistake. In fact, people who instruct applicants for a living on how to write their personal statements also make this mistake. They try to write a personal statement or they try to get you to write a personal statement about something that they think is going to shine to an admissions officer. Your target audience, believe it or not, is always going to be yourself. What critical things about you, what critical periods of your life, what critical experiences, be they triumphs or defeats, When you sit down, close your eyes, and for 30 minutes, take stock of your life, what are the things that are wow moments to you? What are the things that make you stand up? What are the things that give you goosebumps on a scale of 1 to 10? If it's important to you, then you should be writing about it. Not if it sounds important to an admissions officer, if it's important to you. And I will link at this podcast a motivational blog I wrote that deans of admissions read and emailed me and they said, that would be an incredible personal statement. The point being this, it wasn't even written as a personal statement. 
there's nothing about why law or applying to law school in there. I wrote it about overcoming criticism. But because it was such a near and dear topic to me, it would have completely differentiated from the masses of personal statements the typical law school gets. There are three most common mistakes to personal statements. Number one is they're sloppy. My guess is if you're listening to this podcast, you're not going to have a sloppy personal statement. So if you've taken the time to listen, then you're probably going to take the time to have other people proofread your personal statement. But sloppiness can kill, particularly when it's replete with sloppiness, or if you say the wrong name of the school in the personal statement, essay, whatever. The second most common mistake is they do not differentiate. You take something from your resume because a lawyer says, oh, brag about something you did that's important. You clerk for this firm. The problem is, so are 90% of other applicants. They're talking about some job experience or whatever. So the mistake number two, they don't differentiate. Mistake number three, and again, if you read the thing about overcoming failure, I'm going to link, you'll see that this isn't in there, which is why I think deans of admissions reach out to me. I'm going to use three words. They're overwrought, bloviating, and bumptious. Why do I use those three words? Because I would never use a word like that in a personal statement. And personal statements are just wrought with very fancy words that drone on in an intellectual way that you would never talk to someone like in person. Write what's important to you. Yes, write in a concise, professional, well-structured manner. Yes, use precise words because you're going to be a lawyer. No, dear goodness, please don't use the same word over and over again. I used to count how many times someone would use the word fabulous in a letter of continued interest or wonderful because they would use it over and over again. So write well, but don't write for this magical target audience of this intellectual admissions officer sitting in a fancy room trying to find the fanciest application they can find because what they want is a sincere, differentiated you. The best possible personal statement advice I can give is don't write for that person in that office. Write something for yourself. Two pages that's important to you. For the why statements, think of it as three concentric circles. The middle circle, the target, the best one is you, you've been to the school and you connected with it for some reason. So number one is you. You can place yourself at the school. You've been there. You met someone. Number two is, why do I want to go there? I know an alumnus. I know a student. I know a faculty member who is there or has been there, and they, and they raved about it. Those two why reasons for schools that require why essays kill the third thing, which you may have to talk about. If you don't have a personal connection at the school or if you haven't gone, then you have to find something about the school that personally connects to your application. So your program in international law connects with my experience I wrote about in my personal statement about how I worked at an elephant refugee camp in Afghanistan two summers ago. Or your program in animal law, you know, your clinic in animal law connects with my experience working on the elephant refugee camp two summers ago. That would be a good why law because it takes something about you that connects with the school. A better why why that school, and this is holds true not just for essays but for interviews, a better why law is that you know someone or you know something personal about the school, and the best is that you went there and visited. So visits are key. Meeting admissions officers are key. We covered resumes. I talked in great deal about personal statements. We've covered why the school. 
Schools have optional essays. The rule of thumb is at least do one, but if they offer more than one, you do not have to do more than one. As far as diversity statements, I would say that there are too often diversity statement, LSAT, explanation, addenda, GPA, explanation, addenda are used too often. You should write a diversity or adversity statement if you overcome something tremendous, typically something traumatic or a health issue. You should write something, a diversity statement, an adversity statement. If that experience, if that background, if that cultural background, if that um, traumatic event, that health event allowed you to look empathetically not from your eyes anymore, but through other people's eyes. That is the very definition to me as a a former admissions officer of why diversity matters. I did not want at my law schools a group of homogenous people who saw the world in the same way and were incapable of seeing it from someone else's viewpoint. What is your mandate as a lawyer? To see the legal issue, to see the challenge, the obstacle, the life issue, and sometimes these are very serious, life and death, life issues, through your client's perspective. So a bad diversity statement is, I'm not kidding when I say I've read this one, I am left-handed and 59% of the population of the country is right-handed, therefore I am diverse. All that says is I am diverse for diversity's sake. In a diversity statement, by far, the ones that differentiate, the ones that positively stand out, positively differentiate are the ones that say, because of the situation, the experience within which I was raised. I am a Muslim in a small Texas town. And for parts of my life, I question why my parents were there and why I had to put up with with taunts and misunderstanding. But over time, I learned that when people got to know me and I got to know them, they looked through my religious background and saw me for who I am. And now I try to get to, to, to know people for who they are. That is a tremendous diversity statement. So diversity statement, yes, use it if you can see the world from a different perspective because of your upbringing, because of a life experience, but don't force it. And I also had a dindum for a school. I tend to shy away unless you've jumped up like eight or nine points because, again, schools really care about the high score. They don't investigate. LSAC does not investigate nearly to the extent that they used to someone who jumps up seven or eight points. I would say if you jump up from a 150 to a 160, you might want to say something like, I had a bad day. I took it again because Princeton Law has always been my top school and I knew I could do better. So now you've turned your LSAT addendum into a why Princeton Law statement as well. Killer. You just nailed it. GPA addendum. You know, there's way there's way too many submitted. It's very very common for someone to start off with like a 3.1 their freshman year and go up to a you know by their senior year they're getting all A's. You do not need to call that a weakness. Your 3.1 to the admissions officer's attention. So don't worry about it. I would say if there were extenuating circumstances, family illness, personal illness, something like that, of course talk about that in a GPA addendum. If you don't talk about it in the personal statement or the diversity statement, that's the time to do it. But just saying that I matured intellectually and it shows in my transcript, and if I re- and I, I used to get these all the time, if I recalculated my average, not including my freshman year, it would be a 3.9, not a 3.4. That is like the worst GPA addendum. You do not submit that. Okay, so you've applied. You're going to have to wait longer than you probably realize. There's a common misconception that a lot of applicants this cycle can now, if you're an applicant applying next year, they can tell you about this. 
that applicants are read in a rolling manner, but that's not true. They're not read based on when they're completed and submitted. They're read based on data that the admissions offices is pulling that they're seeking, whether it's LSAT, GPA, diversity, region you're from, right? If you're from North Dakota, your application might be pulled a lot sooner than if you're from New York and you're applying to NYU, theoretically. So don't worry so much about the timing. I am horrible, and I've been doing this my entire adult life. I am horrible at predicting the timing of when someone's gonna be admitted. But if you give me a full application, your transcript, your LSAT scores, and all your essays, and, all, and ideally a tape conversation of your interview with a school, I can very precisely tell you whether you're gonna get admitted or not, particularly if I have the cycle data. I have no idea when you're gonna get admitted, so don't overplay the timing. It's probably gonna be slower than you want. What about wait lists? So again, the way you get off the wait list is you positively differentiate, but I would add, you positively differentiate at the right moments. The best time to reach out to schools about wait lists, the best time to visit a school if you're waitlisted is seven to 10 days after their seat deposits are due. They've just lost 300 admits. What are they gonna turn to? Their waitlist. If you've already visited in the summer, like I talked about, and, and made a connection, and if you haven't been overbearing and pinging this poor person every week, but if you stayed in touch once a month you know, with a concise, professional, real reason to stay in touch with the dean of admission, and if five days after their seat deposit is due, seven days, you send a very upbeat email, just checking in, I want to, want to let you know that Princeton Law School is still far and away my top choice. You know, if admitted, that that's where I'll be. I mean, that is like, you know, you, you almost, as far as qualitative things to do, you almost couldn't do something better than that. If you've met them and you've talked to them on the phone, even better, call them. Hey, Dean Spivey, just wanted you to know, you know, I'm, I, I've been very fortunate this cycle. I've been admitted to five awesome schools, but to me, not, none are as great as Princeton Law. And I would walk there if possible from, you know, where I am if I had to, if I were admitted and I would pay my seat deposit tomorrow. If you sincerely would do that and you say that, that is an incredibly powerful thing to say. If you're waitlisted, stay in touch about once a month, ideally again to an admissions officer. But if not, it's still going to go into your application to so send it to the admissions office. Once a month, sending them any sort of update in your life, a brief statement, a visit would be ideal, or a third or fourth letter of recommendation from another person. You just want to keep their name at the top of their heads because here is how the waitlist works. If I've waitlisted a thousand people at Princeton Law School and I need to take 50, I do not want to go read a thousand applications again. So I'm going to focus on the 50 names that pop in my head. I have a blog on spiveyconsulting.com's blog about a guy named Justin Ishbia. I think he had a 152 LSAT and I admitted him off the wait list because I remembered his name because he was, he visited. He and I connected on, on the visit. He was a, a good guy and I could tell. He was a sort of a work hard, play hard in sports, not take himself seriously kind of guy, but take, take his work ethic seriously kind of guy. I didn't even read his file when I admitted him off the wait list for the 152, which was like 15 points below our median. I just called him and admitted him. And he graduated in the top 10% of the class and now is on the board 
at Vanderbilt Law School and gives back significantly to the school because I remembered his name in a positive way. That would be a great way to end this podcast, which has already gone way too long for me. If the admissions office is going to remember you or think about you in a positive way, this includes scholarship negotiation. You're not some Wall Street trader, CEO, strong-arming person. When you scholarship negotiate, you do have leverage if you have high offers from other schools or offers from higher-ranked schools, but always, always, always be pleasant. Dear Dean Spivey, just wanted to give you an update. I just got $60,000 from Dartmouth Law School in scholarship a year, and that's huge to me, and I am debt averse. So any amount of money that Princeton Law has, just know it would be very important to me. But as always, I appreciate your, your consideration. That is the kind of scholarship negotiation letter you want to send. Don't think of this as a hardball, big law negotiation. Differentiate, stand out in a positive way, See admissions as a long process. You don't want to be sprinting through it, pinging the admissions office every week. Play the long game. Let them know who you are. If they remember your name in a positive, upbeat manner, those are the people that punch above their numbers admission-wise. Those are the people that punch above their numbers scholarship-wise. And those are the people that have great cycles, independent of how tough the cycle is. So we are in the middle of a rather, or I would say even more than rather difficult cycle. And I still know people who have been punching above their numbers at multiple schools. What do those people have in common? They are upbeat, they are professional, and they are differentiated. I will end on that note. I wish you the very best in the admissions process. I hope this was helpful. Thank you for your time.